The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, FA Cup. Tim Burr as Forrest fell Leicester and the Woods pipped the cherries. Meanwhile, no food provided, but no shortage of booze or well-fed-up fans as Man United bow out to Borough. We round up all the stories from the fourth round, hear about Sunday night's Cup of Nations final, the climax with the Mane shot, and throw forward to a round of midweek games in the Premier League with league debuts for Frank and Roy and so much more. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Monday the 7th of February, hello to you listener and thank you for being with us today. Today's Totally Features, who we got? Carl Anker. Ahoy, ahoy, James. Ah, lovely stuff, Carl. Matt Davis-Adams is also with us. Hello, James. I'm feeling a little hoarse this morning, I must say. Lucky horse. And uh, Flo Lloyd Hughes <laughs> also with us. Hello, Flo. Morning, James. Excellent stuff. Uh, oh, Matt, your current status is listed as loving Nottingham Forest FC. That's true. Yeah, uh, still on a high after Sunday's magnificence, which I'm sure we'll talk about more as, as indeed we must. Indeed. So, Flo, you're looking for some space in your relationship with QPR, I think. <laughs> Carl, remind me who you support. <sighs> That's so unserious. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of football to discuss, some of it good, some of it bad. Uh, there's there's loads coming up as well. We've got a midweek round of fixtures, the Club World Cup and that, AFCON final for Sunday night. Uh, but I think FA Cup is probably the place uh, to begin. The fourth round taking place Monday to Sunday. It's all the holders, Leicester exiting the competition, thanks to a triumphant performance by the aforementioned Nottingham Forest. It also saw Borough take Man United to penalties Friday night and then put them out. And on Sunday, a huge upset on the South Coast as non-league Boreham Wood beat Bournemouth 1-0 away. Elsewhere, Saturday's sixth-tier Kidderminster was seconds away from becoming one of the competition's greatest upset winners ever. Narrowly missing out. West Ham going through. Meanwhile, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea all made it through. Chelsea getting a bit of a scare from Plymouth. Spurs, Palace and Saints won two, as did Norwich, who uh, were victorious at Wolves. And Everton, who in Frank Lampard's debut, beat Brentford 4-1. It means that all the last 16 uh, all the fifth round teams are now Premier League or Championship, with one exception, and that's Boreham Wood. Wow. Matt, you were at City Ground for the victory over Leicester. Carl, you were at Old Trafford for the uh, for the mealless uh, <laughs> penalty uh, penalty shootout exit. Unfortunate 71,000 without any half-time food. Yeah, brutal. But let's begin with extraordinary Boreham Wood. How, how massive, how heartwarming, especially after Kidderminster's uh, heartbreak. How, how, how delighted were you with this upset? It's kind of one that suits everybody, I think. Boreham Wood obviously get the massive tie in the next round and, and the glory of having beaten Bournemouth. And, and Bournemouth can go back to doing what they're really here to do this season, which is get promoted. So I don't think that Scott Parker will be particularly fussed about it, albeit you know heavily backed in the transfer market, so a little bit more pressure on him now. But yeah, I mean, Boreham Wood deserved to win the game, partly because Bournemouth were, were pretty terrible in it. But Boreham Wood came with a brilliant game plan and executed it. And you know the fact that they're... Their goal scorer was older than their manager was quite a nice little quirk to it, um, I thought. Yeah, I think just to follow up on, on what Matt said as well, I suppose the only concern for Scott Parker might be just the manner in which they created so little. They had 600 passes more than Boreham Wood, which for, for Bournemouth, they're, you know, they're a team that do like to have a lot of the ball. But I think is very sort of cliche, one team wanted to win it more than the other. And I, that is hard, I think, when you play non-league sides because obviously they're going to play a, a simpler brand of football um, and they're going to do the basics very well. Not going to create a whole lot, but they're probably going to take their chances. They're going to be very phys- physical. And I think that was really hard for Bournemouth to deal with. I think they were they looked tired. Um, they weren't really reacting very well to a lot of what what Boren would be coming with and they completely deserved it it wasn't like a smash and grab mm. before they scored that goal they had plenty of chances so I think Scott Parker might be a little bit more concerned in kind of the manner in which they lost that game but there's so much pressure on him to, to get them up because they have they have put a lot a lot of money into into promotion so if that doesn't happen they could be in a bit of trouble Boreham Wood the Wood Matt you mentioned 
the game plan perfectly executed. 18% of possession in this match, just one shot on target. But they continue their extraordinary feat of not conceding a single goal in this competition so far. More about the game plan, Matt. Yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of weekend of showing that, you know, organisation can often trump talent. I saw that almost happen at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. But had the manager, Luke Garrard, who I was a huge fan of, but I usually, my radar is usually up for false humility in these kind of situations from, from the non-league side. But to watch him kind of silently weeping in front of his supporters at the end of the game was quite beautiful after he'd done a post-match interview where he said, yeah, Bournemouth's goal was disallowed. That, that wasn't offside and just kind of seeming like quite a genuine <laughs> nice guy. But it was, you know, Bournemouth had a new goalkeeper, Freddie Woodman, making his debut. They insisted on playing out the back. And so part of the Boreham Wood plan was, well, let's just put loads of pressure on them, press them really high, try and win the ball back. And it worked time after time after time. And they were happy to let them have the ball kind of in the middle of the pitch or even near their goal, knowing that they were just going to not only have their four defenders inside the penalty, area most of the time but most of their midfielders as well and just sheer weight of numbers meant that Bournemouth couldn't find a way through them and it was you know it was not a particularly sophisticated game plan but if everybody sticks to it for the entirety of the 90 minutes and Bournemouth's reserves aren't really up for it then this is the consequence. Brilliant this this is of course the club where uh, chairman Danny Hunter had to remortgage or chose to remortgage his house uh, during the lockdown to help the club survive the financial effects of football shutting up shop so it's magnificent for them they go to Goodison in the fifth round as Matt you mentioned which means we will get Lampard v Garrard which you know (laughs) one vowel away from having uh, all sorts of narrative to it Uh, well that's grand for them Uh, lovely a shame for Kidderminster though a nation watched agog as they came within a couple of minutes of becoming the first sixth tier side ever to put out a top division team in the FA Cup. Wow. And then at the end of extra time as well, heartbreak again. Yeah, I think this was basically just like Declan Rice FC versus the world. Um, West Ham were pretty poor until he came on and he completely changed the game and essentially decided that he was going to change the result and carry the team on his back and get them through to the next round without him. West Ham definitely would have dropped out of this competition. And it's a, it's a brilliant competition for them. It's perfect for a team like West Ham. Obviously, they have still got the Europa League to to, to be in, in contention with. But I think for a team like them, they, they need to be getting to the, the latter stages of cup competitions to kind of show their status and, and their growth. So it would have been so huge for them to, to be knocked out. Kidderminster mm-hmm. defended really well. And I think by the time it got to stoppage time, I think everyone had kind of accepted the fact that, that Kidderminster were going to go through because West Ham yeah. were really struggling and not playing the well. The camera so. pulled back for to kind of put the final score caption up. Yeah, and everything was I, I set think, for fans to I run think on everyone, the pitch. Was, everyone was ready. And then yeah. Declan Rice just completely transformed it. And I do think it was one of those moments where when that goal went in, I think it felt like the Kidderminster players just had nothing left to give. They had used up so much energy defending their goal and defending it really well that that was it. They just couldn't give any more. Extra time was a bit of a siege before. Jared Bowen, again, right at the end of 120 minutes when it looked like we were set for penalties, got uh, the winning goal for West Ham. Lovely pictures afterwards, though, of uh, David Moyes sharing a beer with with the uh, Kidderminster uh, manager, Russell Penn. I don't know if you saw the unique configuration of the Kidderminster manager's office where Russell Penn's got a, a proper desk and then to fit the assistant in, he's got... Do you remember the desk you used to have at primary school with the like yeah. lift up? That's more <laughs> yeah, or less it was a tiny, <laughs> tiny little desk. It's, it's very much kind of nailing the assistant to the manager rather than assistant manager. <laughs> yeah, it was a power, definitely a power move. Why didn't, why didn't West Ham buy a striker, by the way, in January? I mean, this game really just highlighted that. West Ham have bought so many strikers since 2010, I think. Maybe they decided. Let's just, for once, let's just not let's buy not a forward player. Let's not do that. We haven't had the best record. They are a really curious squad in that pretty much anything they achieve for between now and the rest of the season should be considered a great achievement for how far they've come since the pre-COVID era where fans were protesting on the pitch. But it will feel a bit like a wasted opportunity if they don't quite get there due to their lack of squad depth. Hmm. Well, they've still, got, uh, they've still got their irons in plenty of fires, if you'll excuse the expression. Uh, they've got Saints in the next round. Saints who beat Coventry 2-1 in extra time. I'm sure we've all marvelled at the curl on, 
on the uh, on the Armstrong goal in, in that one. Uh, but uh, elsewhere, Matt, let's hear. Let's hear about Nottingham Forest putting out the holders. Leicester, 4-1. You were there singing your Depeche Mode at the final whistle. Yeah, I mean, more video in my mum singing Depeche Mode at the final no, whistle. But, um, I won't Is that available that on social involved. media? Uh, yeah, can you drop that in the pod? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put it in a WhatsApp group. I think she might be slightly uncomfortable given her... Um, I mean, her singing voice is not, not her biggest quality. But she certainly enjoyed herself, as did I. I mean... I honestly think this was the best atmosphere I've ever known at a, a Forest game, ever. I mean, that, that's quite a low bar because it's been no, almost a quarter of a century of abject misery. And so when days like this come along, the fact that it's a four o'clock kickoff, I think probably played a, a bit of a part in that too. But um, I kind of want to do some analysis about the game, but it, it was a bit too emotional for me to do that, really. <laughs> I was at the um, behind the goal where Forrest scored the three goals in the first half in in nine minutes and they did just absolutely obliterate Leicester who'd started far better than Forrest and had a couple of chances to go in front but my goodness me they crumbled in a way which was um, quite alarming if you're a Leicester fan but Forrest mm. were, were brilliant and that, that's what Forrest had been since Steve Cooper came in basically Yeah I feel I've, I follow a lot of Leicester fans on, on social media and I think you could tell as well from Brendan Rodgers' post-match that it does feel like a real pivotal moment for them this defeat I know it's been a really difficult season because the fans that I follow have been tweeting a lot about how miserable they are so that's when you know <laughs> you get a sense of the general vibe but they've obviously had a lot of injuries so defensively they've struggled so Yonchu I don't know like who decided that he was a good player I think I think I've decided that he had two good games once on telly and that's kind of defined his narrative and then I think the Euros proved and, and this season's proved that actually he's not very good um, but he's really struggled a lot of a lot of their defenders have struggled the ones that have been fit but it does seem like from Rodgers' post-match that he's realising that this could be a, a big moment for them in terms of is he going to stay and how they change things because he admitted that this group have been together for a very long time feels like perhaps energy levels, commitment levels, motivation is dipped a lot. And I think he's feeling like something's got to change. Perhaps it's him or they need some new energy in the dressing room. But it certainly feels like one of those moments where a squad is just not pushing each other anymore. There's not competition for places, probably because of injuries. It's like, you know, who's going to have to play. And therefore, it just doesn't seem like they want it that much anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I saw a tweet yesterday, a guy saying that this is worse than the, the darkest days of the Claude Puel era. So I don't know how I don't know how you change it. Um, you know, obviously, Brendan Rodgers has, has given them so much. And that FA Cup win is something that they'll, they'll never forget. But at the same time, what do you do now? Because it's certainly been a really poor season so far. Mm -hmm. Brendan Rodgers talking about some players potentially having played their last game for, for Leicester, which does sound ominous. Uh, but Forrest, though, what's a, what's going on with this remarkable record, Matt, that, that they have against the holders, beating the 2020 winners Arsenal in round three and then Leicester here? But it, am I right? This is off of memory, but is it six of the last eight times you've met the, the reigning FA Cup champions, you've put them out? Yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, obviously, circumstantial Arsenal just just didn't turn up, didn't didn't play with a decent striker, and, and had nothing of the game. And Forest beat them easily. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's a nice little quirk that Forest do well in the FA Cup, but they have a legitimate chance of getting promoted this season, and, and that it feels like a not a now or never moment, but but. Uh, Almost, to be honest, because Brennan Johnson and Jed Spencer are Forest's two best players at the moment by, by quite a, a wide margin. And that, that's not to um, denigrate the contributions of people like Joe Worrell and Steve Cook and Forrest had a really good transfer window. But Johnson and Spence won't be at Forest next season if they're not in the Premier League. And Steve Cooper might not be at Forest for very much longer if they don't get in the Premier League this season either. So I do kind of feel like if Forest are to get promoted, this is the best chance they've had in a long, long time. So the FA Cup's been nice. Yesterday was brilliant. One of my favourite games that I've been to in, in many years. I remember it for a long time. But I would rather go out to Huddersfield in the next round what? and get in the playoffs than, you know, get to the semi-final or the final of the FA Cup. Um, you big softy. Matt, that's that's really <laughs> depressing. You can think that, but don't say it. OK, and look, I, I wouldn't <laughs> normally think it if it hadn't been nearly 25 years since Forrest have been in the Premier League. And let's be honest, Forrest aren't going to win the FA Cup this season anyway. I mean, they've got... The, the 
the inclination is to say, well, you've got a good draw in the next round, Huddersfield yeah. at home. Well, they beat us at home last month and they're higher than <laughs> us in the league table at the moment. So there's nothing to say that Forest are automatically going to win that And game. I suppose I suppose with the, the, the FA Cup dream, I think for a lot of fans, it's like, oh, well, it's inevitable that you, however far you get, you will probably lose to a Premier League side at some point, whether you come up against Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool. Mm. Um, you know, you're probably going to lose to one of those three teams. So it's almost like you're delaying the inev- inevitability of it. And therefore, if you've got a big target in the league, you should focus on that rather than chasing a pointless dream when it's still going to be one of those but big that, sides. That oh, that doesn't oh, mean that sort of defeats the whole... <laughs> No, yeah. the, the, oh. the magic is reaching your, you know, peak. But yeah. I think for for a lot of fans who probably maybe have seen their club get to the fourth and fifth round quite mm. regularly, it's like, well, actually, you know, what's the point if if we know that there's a, a bigger objective this season? I don't. I wouldn't say it's a case of what's the point. I think what you do is you enjoy the the occasions in isolation and don't worry too much about the next round. So regardless okay. of what happens to Forest against Huddersfield, I will still have absolutely loved what happened. Um, on Sunday yesterday, things like, you know, Joe Worrell, who was Forest captain yesterday, had two crack ribs, was supposed to be out for six weeks, came back after two, had a sort of improvised cast that they'd made for him, tackled somebody with his head and then scored a goal. You know, that kind of thing goes down in, in Forest folklore. And what did Leicester offer him respond? Some dope coming on the pitch, trying to punch, you know, the biggest bloke on the pitch who will never watch a football game again. Oh yeah, well, what's happened to uh, the individual in question? Le- Leicester, in fairness to them, very swiftly. I was right in front of this, by the way. I had a perfect view of it. Came on and and punched Keenan Davis as hard as he could in the face, which is an absolutely shocking thing to see. Uh, and Leicester, I think less than an hour after full time, put out a statement saying we know who this guy is. He's banned from every home and away game for the rest of his life. So right, credit to Davis and the uh, the group of Forest players that he, that, that he was with that they didn't respond. They did. They had a couple of swings back and, oh, did they? and okay. clipped him. I think yeah, which is absolutely fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, how must he be feeling this morning? I, I, you know, what's he going to do? Plead not guilty? Well, there's three million people watching it on telly who saw it. So good mm. luck with that. Leicester's week uh, will see them take on Liverpool Thursday in that Premier League midweek round. Liverpool, who are 3-1 winners over Cardiff. A game which featured Luis Diaz making his debut off the bench and also the return of Harvey Elliott, who made light of having a, what was it, a dislocated ankle, fractured ankle? Broken ankle, yeah, very much Broken ankle, which is, you know, no laughing matter, uh, with that extraordinary goal. Better than Stuart Armstrong's? No, I think Stuart Armstrong's probably got the goal of the FA Cup weekend. Really? Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it that way. It was, it was a very sweet hit. Jan Valerie encouraged to shoot. Armstrong does! Oh, I say! That's absolutely wonderful! Certainly was. Flo, who would you give it to? I would give it to Armstrong as well. I agree with, with Carl. I think... Obviously, the narrative around Elliot's comeback makes that goal a lot sweeter. But I do think for pure technique and swerve and the camera angle as well yeah. that you get on that Armstrong one, I think that adds to the finesse. So whoever produced and edited that has helped, I think, sway things towards Armstrong's goal. Yeah, nice. that, that's that's fair. The Charlie um, shared a gif of it with us before the show, and like I watched the the highlights of the game and watched the goal and watched the replay. I thought, oh, that's good. And then when I saw the gif, I thought I realised that sort of seven minutes had gone past, and I was just watching. The <laughs> GIF oh yeah, it's hypnotising, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's amazing. But the first touch from Elliot was outrageous. Fantastic, Elliot is. I'm trying to find the right superlative to describe him, <laughs> but he's uh, both in him and in Curtis Jones, Liverpool's central midfield as well, stock for the future, which. Yeah, I'm. I'm not supposed to get too excited about the possibility of Jurgen Klopp staying at Liverpool and, and creating a new great Liverpool side, but he sure got a nice plan for it, hasn't he? Mm. I'm going to say it's a GIF. Oh, that's okay. I, wow. okay. that's how I roll. Oh dear. Okay, yeah. Yeah. you said that. Hello again, listeners. It's Kyle Monaghan here from Paddy Power. Lend me your ears, and I'll tell you a tale. All eyes will be on Everton's trip to Newcastle this Tuesday as Frank Lampard takes charge of the Toffees for the first time in the Premier League since his appointment. Of course, he got off to a brilliant winning start, thrashing Brentford at the weekend in the FA Cup. He'll also be able to call upon the services of new signing Delhi Ali, as the former good player was cup-tied last weekend. One would hope that the friendly arm around the shoulder approach might get Ali's career back on track, or at the very least, get him to sort out his barnet. 
There's also plenty going on with Eddie Howe's Magpies, as they'll be showing off some of their shiny new signings. The Man Mountain, that is Darren Byrne, has come in from Brighton, and that should improve things at the back. Matt Target comes in on loan from Aston Villa and will slot in at left-back. The most interesting signing is the one of Bruno Gamarish from Lyon. The Brazilian midfielder has the powers to transform how the side will move the ball, so it'll be vital for Newcastle's survival hopes that he settles in quickly to his new home. Kieran Trippier and Chris Wood were the first two lads in the door at the beginning of last month and, as expected, have come straight into the starting eleven. So the Newcastle project is well underway now, listeners. And the race to beat the drop really starts now on Tuesday night. Newcastle are currently odds of 8-13 to 13 to stay up after their shopping spree. In terms of this game, though, the Paddy Power Traders have made Newcastle the slight favourites for this one at 8-5. The draw is 9-4 and Everton are priced up at 17-10. to 10. So, listeners, the Saudis have put their money where their mouth is so far. So let's all sit back, relax and enjoy the show. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Liverpool will be hosting Norwich. I mentioned Leicester for them this week, but it's, it's Norwich in round five of the Cup. And Norwich should beat... Wolves. There's a lot of stories out there in the FA Cup fourth round. Amongst them, Man United, Carl, Friday night, 1-1 at the end of 120 minutes with Middlesbrough. Borough going through 8-7 on penalties. And you were there. Did, I hope you took sandwiches or something. <laughs> Some snacks. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a very strange game. Uh, so around about the 40th minute uh, uh, a Tannoy, you know, Tannoy Stadium announcement said there would be, due to a technical error, no food or drink would be sold in the concourse, which created quite vociferous, vis- very loud boos uh, <laughs> from the 71,000 in attendance at Old Trafford uh, and some chance of we want Glazers out. This was a Man United performance of that. And I don't want to use the word dominant because right. Manchester United haven't put in dominant performances from minute one to minute 19 so long that if they have 20 minute patches of competency sometimes my eyes go "Ooh, this is nice Hmm. Uh, this is more of the smash and grab FA Cup victory sort of you know United get the early penalty Cristiano Ronaldo pulls that wide Uh, Bruno Fernandes misses an absolute sitter Middlesbrough's goal involves an accidental handball that I don't really know how well I know the rules as to how that now works but Chris Wilder admitted after the game that he very much expected that goal to be chalked off uh, and a penalty shootout where the quality of the penalties depending on your opinion were either really good and no goalkeeper could save those or were quite average and both goalkeepers should have saved at least one more Um, very strange game I think the thing for Manchester United now is do you prefer to watch a better plan being executed to a mediocre degree or the sort of freestyling plans of the previous managerial era? Do you like watching long blues freeform jamming sessions or do you like watching amateur opera? I don't, I don't like either of those, th- those things, Carl. What do I do? <laughs> Just don't, want, don't watch Manchester United as, Carl, as a thing Carl, where do you right stand now. on it? Uh, uh. The tactical plan and the principles that Ralph Rang is trying to bring to this Man United team are good. They are very much how most modern football teams want to play. So something we saw quite early on in this game in the 4-3-3 was Scott McTominay, deepest central midfielder, would drop between the two centre-backs. So it'd be three to give more space to the centre midfielders in front and really help with build-up. That's how basically... Bayern Munich do that in build-up. England did that in build-up at the Euros. Liverpool do that in build-up. There were parts of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Man United where Nemanja Matic would do that. And they did that for about 20 minutes. And then McDonough stopped doing that. And I don't know why. And I don't know if it's just a tactical instruction or if Scott McTominay just forgot that that's his new job. Um, and this happens every now and again. So that Bruno Fernandes' chance was created because Cristiano Ronaldo sort of ran up to try and press the, the goalkeeper causing the goalkeeper to panic to pass it into central midfield where Fernandes was waiting in a, as a midfield trap, won the ball and sprung forward. That's what Ralph Rangnick wants to do. That's how Southampton score loads of their goals in 2019-20. That's good football. But the execution of both of those ideas was half-hazard, didn't last from minute one to minute 90. So you're going, 
maybe this is good enough to finish in top four. I don't think they're the favourites for top four. I don't think they're favourites for most of the things they want to do. And the right. only real reason I'm still excited, well, reasonably excited about the rest of this season is because Atletico Madrid are bad. Hmm. Atletico Madrid got pumped this weekend by Barcelona. But yes, I, I do want to ask you a little bit more about the Lingard situation because I missed out on that entire soap opera over the last uh, couple of days. But first off, a note for myself here that reads, before Carl goes ranty, get some love for the borough. Have you got anything nice to say about borough? I can say something nice about borough. Please do, Flo. I was. I know Carl mentioned the penalties. I was of the opinion that borough's penalties were pretty impressive. Um, like I think maybe... Six, five or six out of the out of the eight went right in the corner. Um, one of them was actually smashed into the top corner. Some intriguing styles, I would say. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they all were were well executed um, and right, right in the corner. Joe Lumley, former QPR goalkeeper, I don't think ever saved a, a penalty during his time at QPR. But I appreciated the way he celebrated the penalty shootout like he had saved the winning penalty and not the other way around uh, and not just got away with it. Um, but yeah, I think it was it was a good performance. I think they still they still kept themselves in the game. I mean, Matt will be able to say as well how much that they've improved under under Wilder um, from where they were under Warnock, which was so so turgid. So I think it's it's a big lift for them to be able to show that they can kind of compete and contain a side like United, even though they were sort of probably living on the edge for for a lot of parts of that game. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's good for Chris Wilder because uh, you know people who don't follow the championship will, will kind of associate him with how terrible Sheffield United were last season. Now, but he is an excellent coach, uh, which he showed here. Great for Sol Bamber as well, by the way. I mean, mm. having recovered from cancer to resume his career and kind of taken to Middlesbrough because he's Neil, one of Neil Warnock's henchmen, and, and essentially for as much what he does off the pitch as what he does on it, but kept on by Chris Wilder. Um, scored his penalty magnificently here and, and then went full lethal weapon on Twitter afterwards, simply tweeting, I'm too old for this S three star emojis, <laughs> three crying laughing face emojis. That and picture was so funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so he, all these players blank. are celebrating and no he's just emotion. standing there. Yeah, great, brilliant. Yeah. Um, I've kind of got this in perspective. It's just a penalty shootout winning the FA Cup. Right, <laughs> United, by the way, have lost seven of their last eight penalty shootouts. What is that about? I think their only one is of their only victories against Rotherham. Is, that is it? All right. When it counts, say Carl. Uh, Ralph Rangnick and Jesse Lingard. But take me through, uh, if you can, with bullet points, the uh, this unfolding drama. Uh, so prior to the game, um, Ralph Rangnick was asked which which Manchester United players would be available. Uh, he informed us that Edison Cavani asked for some uh, personal time following his World Cup qualifiers, as Cavani often does. Um, and then he also informed us that Jesse Lingard had asked for some uh, a few personal days to get his head right based on the the turbulent January transfer window where he and the fact point, that he didn't move the fact he didn't move the fact that he was told he could leave the fact that the fact that one, on the day of you know, January thirty first he was told he could leave and, and and go to Newcastle if the right deal could be struck and then as the day progressed he was informed that actually no he would not and, and would have to stay um, so that was what. Rangnick informed us. Uh, not too long after that, Jesse Lingard said that he was told by the club that he could do this. Rather than Jesse Lingard telling the club he wants some days off, he tweeted words to the effect of the club offered me this personal time and he would always perform with 100% professionalism when called upon. So this is now the, I'd say, third incident where Ralph Rangnick's candidness in a press conference has led to uh, the dis disapproval or, or a certain Manchester United player having their nose put out of joint, which is a curious thing. Mm. I, th I think this is, I think this largely comes down to Ralph Rang essentially being very much, if you ask him a question, he's going to give you the answer and he doesn't really care for, for protecting certain players or, or circling the wagons in the way that uh, his predecessor might have. And I think that's caused maybe sort of a, uh, a cold swimming pool shock to some of these players going, oh, no, my manager's actually not going to say nothing's going on, you know, look away. He, he will actually say X, Y, Z. Um, again, much like I said after the Martial incident, I, I don't know who's telling the truth or when you say there's probably varying degrees of the truth and something's probably in the middle. But I think if Jesse Lingard wants to take some days out after what was a pretty 
unsatisfactory January transfer window and has been a rather unsatisfactory season for him so far, by all means, you should take that time away. At full time, Mr. Rang also said, um, I, I'm calling him Mr. Rang because he, he speaks in a very adult voice and wears glasses. That, there you go. Uh, he, he also said words to the effect of he had one less senior player on, on the substitute bench, alluding to, to Lingard and Lingard's decision to do that, which felt a very unnecessary dig of the knife uh, there. But I, at this point in time, I think Jess Lingard should be getting a lot of minutes for Manchester United between now and the end of the season, if only because he's. I think he's now second to, to Jaden Sancho in the hierarchy of players that play on the right. He can also back up Bruno Fernandes in the number 10 position. And I mean, if Rangit wants to play high-pressing football that relies on people being dedicated on their off-the-ball work, you should play Jesse Lingard. Um, so this this proxy weird war of words should, uh, I hope that gets dealt with quite quickly. Mm. All right, Borough goes through though and they'll be facing Spurs in the fifth round. Spurs who looked rampant in a 3-1 victory over Brighton. Sun Young Min back and doing his thing with uh, Harry Kane. Uh, Flo, your QPR were not rampant as you went out to Championship Strugglers Peterborough. Yeah. Um, one of the teams with the worst um, goal records in the whole of the, the EFL, but um, QPR failed to score a goal against them. Um, I think kind of what we were saying earlier about Bournemouth and Forest, there is you know a much bigger thing at play this season for QPR with a, a serious chance of going up to the Premier League um, either automatically or through the playoffs. So I wouldn't say it's the end of the world um, to, to get knocked out at this stage, but a bit like Matt said, when you're facing a team like Peterborough who are struggling, I think it's frustrating for fans, especially as a massive away following when, I mean, like the whole season there's been really, really good away following for QPR. So I think fans were really disappointed at kind of the manner of the performance. Um, Chris Willock as well was really missed there. He's had a brilliant season for QPR. So I, I think all in all, it's, it's probably for the best, but I think it is frustrating when kind of fans feel like they're not given a performance that, that perhaps they deserve. Right. And certainly if you subscribe to the flow and map, FA Cup's all very well, but sooner or later you're going to meet Man City School of Thought. Then, <laughs> then you're not going to worry too much because that's exactly who Peterborough are going to be facing next, having uh, got past a Rangers. Uh, excellent. Well, there are loads of other stories in the in the FA Cup this weekend. Any other ones you want to pick out? Uh, Matt, I know you were commentating on Chelsea making heavy weather of Plymouth, uh, almost getting taken to penalties here. Yeah, and, and like I said with Boreham Wood, you know, Plymouth came with a great tactical plan, which is particularly impressive given that their manager is is 37-year-old Stephen Schumacher, who's, oh, I mean, he's definitely done fewer than 15 games in charge since he replaced uh, his best mate, Ryan Lowe, uh, who went to, to Preston. He was he was in charge of the Everton under-11 team not too long ago, Schumacher, so it's an um, incredible step up. But they, they, they played with two strikers, which stopped Chelsea being able to bring the ball out from the back with Christensen and Rudiger in the way that they would have liked, and that seemed to really, really affect Chelsea. Could have been different because Chelsea hit the woodwork three times in the first half and if, if one of them had gone in then they might well have gone on to, to an easy victory but poor Ryan Hardy at, at the end you know he gets the penalty to make it 2-2 deep in extra time in front of the 6,000 Plymouth fans who were there and you could see him kind of shaking as he went to take the penalty it was a poorly struck one and whether Kepa's got a bit of a psychological advantage on people these days because people know he's really good at saving penalties, I'm not sure. Uh, but he didn't have to work very hard to stop this one. And then, yeah, as soon as the final whistle went, poor Hardy just crumpled to his knees and, and looked as if he wanted the ground to swallow him up, which was um, a difficult watch. But yeah, mm. Chelsea, far from at their best and needed goals from, from two fullbacks when they had about 250 million quids worth of attacking talent on the pitch, which isn't a great sign. I see. All right, then. Uh, a quick mention for Crystal Palace. A, because of how amazing Michael Olise was once again as they got past Hartlepool. And also uh, the fantastic uh, donation that the club and the fans have got together to make to help support Hartlepool manager Graham Lee's wife, who's uh, facing some uh, serious medical conditions and associated uh, expenses. Uh, so there you go. Palace will be hosting Stoke in the next round. It's Borough Spurs, Luton Town against Chelsea. Everton against Boreham Wood, Peterborough Man City, Forest Huddersfield, Liverpool Norwich and Saints West Ham. That's the start of March, round five. Next up, let's talk about the AFCON final. We all enjoy the sport we call the beautiful game. But since I've retired, I've discovered an ugly, even darker side to the sport we love. 
Join me as Jamie Redknapp investigates. Thanks, Jamie. We'll take it from here. Join Jamie Redknapp for Jamie Investigates, the football mockumentary series. Watch on Paddy Power's Twitter. This week, Jamie investigates people who still call the Premier League the Premiership. Do you know the truth? Paddy Power. 18 plus, Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Sunday night in Cameroon, Sadio Mane with the final kick in the penalty shootout to see Senegal beat Egypt and become African champions for the first time. Here's what it sounded like on Senegalese radio. Sadio Mane, qui a le sacre au bout du pied. Sadio Mane. Well, joining us now on the line from Cameroon the morning after, the night before it is, Maher Mazahi. Hi, Maher, how are you? Hey, I'm okay. Uh, very tired. It was a late night for me last night, as I imagine was for many uh Many of my Senegalese brothers and sisters, but uh, but very happy to have finished another African, African Cup of Nations. Right. And did you get the ending you wanted? Yeah, you know, I thought before the match that it would be better to have Senegal win this. Uh, on the whole, Egypt probably didn't deserve to win. They didn't, didn't play the, the brand of football that we all like to, to watch. But I felt bad for Egypt as well. I always, <laughs> you always kind of feel like a, like a parent when, uh, when two teams play like this. And you have two players like Mane and Salah who are so, so likable. You don't want either of them to, to lose, really. But, uh, yeah, I think I did want Senegal to win. OK. Uh, it, it, would you, how would you put this down in the kind of pantheon of great Senegal games? Is it even better than the World Cup win over France 20 years ago? Yesterday, I was speaking to my brother, Baba Kardiara, from BBC Africa. And he was saying, um, you know, they have a World Cup uh, playoff in March against Egypt. Actually, it's a home and away, mm. and uh, for for a place in Qatar 2022. So we're going to see these two sides uh, go at it at least two more times. And he was telling me, yeah, like the priority is to win this Cup of Nations. We don't care about the World Cup at the moment, uh, which shows you that really the magnitude of this match. Because you know, a lot of people like decried the football that was played, and I, I really understand that. Trust me, I do. Uh, it was boring for all of us. But um, when you Consider, I'm, like me, when I watch football, you have to con- like, take into account the entire context. And when you think about the fact that since 1965, Senegal have been coming to a Cup of Nations and they've had heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. In 65, they were eliminated on you know a goal average rule, which is, I think you guys already spoke about goal average. It's ridiculous. Uh, in 92, they hosted the tournament for the first time. High hopes, bounced in the quarterfinals to Cameroon. 2002, AFCON final. Losing in the, in the penalty shootout to Cameroon. 2017, Sadio Mane misses a crucial penalty, lose to Cameroon as well. You have to understand, like, these players are bearing the weight of, you know, these historic wrongs that were sort of done to their country. Um, Sadio Mane, when he missed that penalty in 2017, his uncle's car got vandalized, his home got vandalized. He didn't take a penalty again for Senegal for another year and a bit. So it really traumatized him. And for him to, like, you know, step up immediately in the third minute to go and take that penalty and for him to miss again. You have to think that all of this is probably going on through a player's mind. And and then he gets the final penalty in the penalty shootout and he just runs up and just blasts it as hard as he could um, past the, the Egyptian goalkeeper, Gebeski. When you take into account all of these details, I think you have a further, uh, greater appreciation for what's going on. You don't just focus on, you know, possession play and how many shots and, and all of that. Mm. Let's talk about that that penalty, that that final winning penalty. Just an extraordinary hit, given the context and the the history behind it, the personal history for Sadio Mane, and also the the state he seemed to be in before stepping up to the spot. Really, really agitated. Yeah, from the press box, we could see him. You know, between each penalty kick, we could see him sort of drift off away from 
the line of Senegalese players that were standing at half. And for us, he looked very nervous because he's just, it seemed like he was just pacing around in circles. I don't know. Apparently, uh, somebody told me that on TV, he seemed actually quite calm. So I don't know. I, I didn't see the TV copy yet, but uh, it looked like he was pacing and, and really nervous. So um, for me, I thought like, yeah, this is going to be a difficult one, especially since the Egyptian goalkeeper, Gebeski. Mm. I don't know if you guys have seen this or not, but he's he with the, his team of goalkeeping coaches and the other goalkeepers. They uh, before they go into penalty shootouts, they print off the uh, Senegalese players uh, or any any op opponents players recent penalties and they tape it to a water bottle that he then wraps up into a towel and he takes with him. And you can see him like whenever uh, he's getting ready to to step up to to face another penalty taker, he just kneels for like ten seconds, looking at the player that's advancing towards him, the number, and then he's like, okay, so this is Kalidou Koulibaly, and then he'll like look at his water bottle. He's pretending, he's trying to do it in a very slick manner, but everybody can see that he's doing it, and and then he sees, okay, Kalidou Koulibaly goes to the left, and it actually works. Like he dove in the right direction four out of five times. Uh, during the penalty shootout. He obviously saved Sadio Mane's penalty. He had really good performances in penalty shootouts against Cameroon and the Ivory Coast as well. So with all of that going through Mane's mind, he just ran up really fast. And like you said, I felt like he hit it with the force of all of those historic failures behind him, all that frustration, all that angst, right past Gabeski. And yeah, then, then it was just catharsis, pure catharsis for all of the players and staff. Meher, what was it like in the stadium? Because on the on the TV, it seemed like such a such an emotional release for so many, especially the coaching staff and the players. But in, in terms of the fans in the stadium, were they swaying more towards Senegal or or Egypt? Because I feel like on social media, it certainly felt like a lot of people wanted Mane and, and Senegal to win. Yeah, it was similar in the stadium. Um, I could I was pitch side uh, pre match. Uh, and I could, I was there when the players were coming out, and immediately I noticed that when Senegal trotted out, they were, they were cheered, and when Egypt came out, they were booed, with the exception of Mohamed Salah. He's still a very popular person and player over here. So, speaking of yeah, what happened that after Mane scored that goal, uh, there were actually two Senegalese journalists that had fainted in the press box and had to be stretchered down. They would be end up being okay, but just to tell you like the emotional that like all of this has taken on some of these people um so there's that i, I saw ali Ucisi at full time same thing hug his assistant coaches for maybe 15 20 seconds and then he too just fell to the ground and he stayed there for another 30 45 seconds the, the senegalese goalkeeper who had missed in the penalty shootout in the 2002 afghan final against cameroon and he was just sobbing, you know, just crying. Um, as so many players were just really, really emotional. Um, you know, after the game, they're dedicating the victory to, you know, uh, former teammates that had passed away, former coaches like Bruno Metsu, who was in charge in the 2002 World Cup. All of these things sort of go through your head. You know, when you win a tournament, you, you think about all the people that couldn't be here. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely an emotional moment. The president of Senegal, Macky Sall, uh, congratulating everybody. And then all you have to do is is take a quick Google search of Dakar and look at the celebrations and, and you'll see yourself. I don't think they're going to sleep until the, the team arrives and they have a proper hero's welcome. Magnificent. Mo Salah, Egypt, multiple winners of this tournament, but not with Mo Salah in their ranks. How, how was his game? Yeah, it's, it's difficult being Mo Salah. You know, life's not easy. It's a hard knock life for him with, with the Egyptian national team. <laughs> they really don't play an, uh, a great attacking brand of football, unfortunately for him. He's the only real attacking outlet for Egypt who tend to soak up pressure, uh, who fit up to him, hoping he performs a miracle, which sometimes he, he very well does. In the second half, usually they bring on Aston Villa's Trezeguet or uh, Zemalek Zizou, and that kind of helps out. Um, adds some speed to the side, but it's not easy being him. Um, I've seen a statistical comparison between uh, Salah with Liverpool and Salah with Egypt, and just in every single category, in terms of touches in the opponent's box, in terms of uh, goals, assists, shots, it's just much, much higher with Liverpool. So until mm -hmm. e Egypt changes their brand of football, and they did play a good brand of football from 2006 to 2010, but under Carlos Queiroz and with this team, I don't expect him to be as productive. No, fair enough. All right, well, as you mentioned, they will be taking on Senegal again in seven weeks' time in that two-legged playoff for a place at the World Cup. 
Uh, before we let you go, though, Maher, tell us about a much better game which took place on Saturday night, the third, fourth playoff. Yeah, uh, between Cameroon and Burkina Faso. Uh, I was really happy for Burkina Faso at first because um, I kind of wanted them to, to get a win with all that's going on in their country. Of course, they, there was a coup on the 23rd of January and they got off to a roaring start, 3-0. Cameroon did not play any of their starters. They had a full rotation. So they left uh, Vincent Abubakar, Carl Tokoy Kambi. All their real starters were on the bench, but especially in attack. And yeah, so Burkina Faso got off to a 3-0 start and you kind of think this match is over. Sure enough, Cameroon bring on Vincent Abubakar at halftime. They bring on Carl Tokoy Kambi um, and they managed to pull it back 3-3. And uh, Vincent Abubakar scores two goals, bringing his total to eight goals, which is the most we've ever seen in African Cup of Nations since uh, 1974 when Ndei Mulamba scored the, the record nine goals. So that was just a really great tournament from his part. Uh, for me, probably the player of the tournament, even though Sadio Mane was voted as such yesterday. Another great penalty shootout. But uh, yeah, it was good to see Cameroon uh, come away with some silverware. I think they they deserved it, I think, on the whole. They were a bit unlucky to go to Egypt. So it was good to see them to see them win uh, the third place match, which you don't really care about until you're third place. And then it's just like a nice <laughs> way to go home. Absolutely. Abubakar, eight goals, which is twice as many as the entire Egypt team managed in the entire uh, tournament. So there you go. Maher, well, there you go. So as you say, AFCON comes to an end. A final memory from Cameroon to, to leave us with until we speak again? Yeah, I'm thinking of Ali Ossise's uh, press conference. Um, four or five players barging in, dousing him in water, and then a media officer saying, what have I done to deserve this? And pretty much ending the press conference and him just saying, sorry, uh, my guys have uh, stirred up again. Um, and yeah, but Cameroon was great. I think uh, if you ever have a chance to get out here, definitely do it. Me, myself, I am heading back on a bus to Douala. going to try to have some plantain chips again before I leave. And I fly out uh, tonight. So it's been really good speaking to everybody and updating you all from here. And we hope we can speak again soon. Thanks for your great work. I really enjoyed reading all of your dispatches from Cameroon over the tournament. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been fabulous having you on. Uh, I think everyone's really enjoyed it, Maher, and I hope you're going to be uh, joining us uh, soon. I hope you also got to some jazz clubs uh, in Cameroon. <laughs> I did, I did. You did, okay, excellent. <laughs> I'll send this to you on DM after. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, um, well, uh, safe uh, safe travels then on your on your way back home, and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, guys. Take care. The great Maher Mazahi. Ooh, in AFCON news, Carl, what's all this about Chris Hooten being the new Ghana manager? Ha-ha. Yes. <laughs> oh, come on. This has been come long, on, can we have uh, a Ghana-Egypt final? It's Imagine been the long, football there. Oh, blimey. It's been long gestating since uh, Ghana's uh, highly disappointing AFCON performance. Uh, and it looks as if uh, the announcement will be made official sometime during this week. Uh, I, I know Gary Alsmith has been saying the deal has basically been done since Friday. Uh, there's also been some reported images of Chris Hooten uh, talking to uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi's family, which I thought was quite interesting considering uh, Hudson-Odoi has three senior England caps. So he could still yet change allegiances to Ghana. Uh, the big thing for Ghana is, is in, in seven, six, seven weeks, they have a two-legged World Cup qualifier against Nigeria, which mm. is essentially the biggest derby in sub-Saharan African football. Uh, certainly the biggest derby among the English-speaking nations. Nigeria have just changed their manager um, following Uwagan's uh, restoration to the technical director role. So both of these countries are very much got six or seven weeks to plan for qualifying for the World Cup against the country they essentially hate the most in footballing terms. So while Matt has laughed and has... I think I think it's a good appointment. I think I don't think it's a Bart Simpson ha-ha. I think it's, it's a... I it's a it's really... A- it's a really intriguing one. If... The, if 
he was given a technical director role and was told essentially, you know, do what you're doing possibly with Callum Hudson, the Doyle's family, go out and find every single eligible dual national that is living in, in England, uh, the Netherlands, Italy, France and whatnot, and, and see who's out there who can play for Ghana and get them to, to realize that the Ghanaian football association is not a complete basket place. Then yes, I, I very much believe he'd, he'd be excellent at the role. And I'm sure a large reason why he, is being touted for the managerial job is because he will probably be doing this in some capacity, right? You look right now, um, Mohamed Salisu, Southampton centre-back, who was phenomenal against Manchester City recently, has not featured for the national team since 2019, where he dropped out due to injury problems and basically said, I'm not going to play for Ghana for reasons and that they need to sort themselves out. So as a manager, we know he is a... I don't drab want to say prag- is the word you're looking for, Carl. Drab and dreary. I, I know Carl's going to say yeah. pragmatic to put a positive <laughs> spin on pragmatic. things. But. I'm going to say I don't want to say pragmatic because pragmatic. If you're pragmatic and you look at Ghana squad, you'd go, okay, we'll flood central midfield and just chuck in loads of crosses, and we can actually play a little bit. But right. I do I do worry that Chris Hutton will just go, you know, let's just try and grind out one 0 victories against Nigeria because Nigeria are better. But that's what Ghana have been trying to do for so long. That's really the problem. Badly. That's the problem. Ghana's had a lot of coaches in the last twenty, or essentially since their 2008, 2013, 14 heyday. They've they've had a lot of high turnover in coaches. The Avram Grant era was particularly bad, and like many big teams that go through managerial crises. The only reason you do get the sense that every manager is being hired because they're the opposite of what the previous manager was. Mm. Matt, your right reply on Chris Hooten? Um, well, put it this way. I went to for his first game of the season, uh, first game back with a full stadium after lockdown and his team mm. were booed off at halftime and it didn't get much better than that. I mean, he... he he has one way of playing. Uh, it obviously comes with a caveat, tremendous bloke, etc. and so on. And, and if he's there to do what Carl says, i.e. Yep. charm scout. people and talk people in and scout, he'll be great at that. But if you're have to, if you going to Callum Hudson-Odoi and saying, come play for Ghana, I'm going to coach the team, then that is not going to convince him to, to switch allegiance. He'd rather play no international football than Chris Hutton international football. But it would be, I mean, it's too early on a Monday morning for me to get, to get my head around Chris Hutton managing a team at a World Cup. But, yeah. All right, well, can I just ask on, on behalf of everybody who's not been keeping track of what the FIFA regulations are about switching allegiances internationally, you were saying Callum hudson Adoy's featured three times for the senior England side and therefore can still swap. What, what is the, what's the kind of parameter now? Uh, so uh, last year uh, with Mahea contributing a fantastic piece for The Athletic, we, we looked at as, as to how these rules have changed and it's largely due to the work of the Algerian FA uh, in, in the early 2000s, who essentially lobbied and petitioned FIFA and went, please look at all these fantastic French Algerian players who have got under 19 French caps, under 21 French caps and no senior caps. Can we have some of them? Right. Um, and, and I think their the first appearance of 2006, 2006? In 2010 World Cup was the beginning of their sort of new generation of dual nationals. Uh, this was then capitalized again. Uh, so I think... Algeria's lobbying essentially made if you had no senior appearances, you could swap, but you know, under 21s didn't lock you in. And then right. Morocco's um, did essentially work on the, on the following things to say, can we, can we limit the amount of senior appearances? So now three is the most. If you have fewer than three appearances for a national team and you're dual national, you can swap. Um, you've also seen this very quickly happen with the Jamaican national team. So now Mikel Antonio is a Jamaican international because he had a, you know, won the year uh, as Mejia once said it's quite fun to watch no one gets a passport quicker than when an international football player switching allegiances things get just stamped very 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 mm. very very quickly um, so you've not been this, to Malta then uh, I have not is it good no no it's lovely uh, just on the you know passport front uh, but um, yeah so this AFCON was quite interesting because it was it was the first major AFCON with these uh, three caps rule changes so Nigeria had the had the largest uh, dual national contingent in in Nigerian footballing history, uh, and I think we'll we will see this more from World Cup to World Cup and Afcon to Afcon. So the next year's Afcon that will happen in July in the Ivory Coast will have uh, plenty of uh, dual national players, including Wilfred Zaha. 
Brilliant. I think as well with Callum Hudson-Odoi, I think why there's probably quite a, a positive chance is that he's been heading over to Ghana at every opportunity. Winter break, he was straight on a plane, straight over to Ghana. Obviously, he's got family there and, and likes to holiday there. But it does feel like he's got a bigger connection than perhaps other dual national players. Danny Welbeck being one of them who I think... Carl will be able to mention a lot of Ghanaian fans are still a bit sore about the fact that he chose to play for England over Ghana. So I think there is, it seems like there's quite a strong chance there and it may not take a lot for Chris Hutton to persuade him. But I still feel quite positive about this Chris Hutton appointment. So, you know, if, if Ghana beat England at, at the World Cup, Matt, mm. maybe you'll be eating your words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Indeed. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, there you go. Well, uh, still to come in today's bumper Totally Football show quick roundup of some of the other things that happened this weekend and also a throw forward to the midweek Premier League action. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will come in handy when Mikel Arteta finally bends the process altogether. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply. And please gamble responsibly. Totally Football League show is out with the always excellent Matt Davis-Adams on this Monday. Matt, are you going to be talking about League One leaders Rotherham, who were 1-0 up against Accrington Stanley with a couple of minutes to go. Stanley got awarded a penalty. Then what happened? Uh, some dope from the crowd came on and kicked the ball away, and then they eventually took the penalty and missed it. And it's kind of... It's, it's funny in a way, but it, it, it's it, the context of it is changed slightly from what happened at Forest on Sunday, I think. But, I right. mean, we, we'll get the inside track on this because we've got Joe Jacobson with us for the whole show today, who is the captain of Wickham Wanderers, and he was an absolute delight. He's always great, great value. So I'll ask him, I think, about how players are feeling because people have just gone mad, haven't they? Like going to football games and coming on the pitch, it seems like a real post-lockdown weird thing that's happening that we definitely need to stop. So yeah, I mean, it was funny in the Rotherham game, but um, yeah, let's stop running on the pitch and, and yeah. making footballers feel unsafe and stuff, shall we? Indeed so. Totally Football Show European Edition. Be with you first thing on Tuesday. Let's see, Barcelona beating up on Atletico Madrid... Top three being only one point apart in Italy. Messi scoring a goal. That's all going to be in there. Dramatic stuff with Alvaro and uh, uh, James and Jules. Uh, the Athletic Women's Football Podcast is also out on Tuesday. And there's a lot to talk about in that because it was a huge weekend in the Women's Super League. Was it not, Flo? You were at Arsenal's 1-1 draw with Man United on Saturday featuring pass of the season. Yeah, it was a weird one. Um Arsenal probably should have lost that game. Manchester United were by far the better team. Ella Toon had a chance in the second half that she should have put away and, and, and Manchester United should have won the game 2-0. But she somehow misses that one-on-one -on -one opportunity. And then about eight minutes later, Arsenal get the equaliser with an unbelievable Miedemar pass into their new signing, Black Stenius, who scores her first goal for Arsenal. They, they've shown a lot of fighting spirit over the last couple of weeks because it, it took a late Tobin Heath equaliser against Manchester City to rescue a point there too. So I think in, in that sense, it's positive because they'd look like a bit of a broken team recently, um, especially after defeat to Birmingham City. They kind of looked like they were playing for themselves a little bit um, and weren't playing together as a unit. But I think these results have brought them together, but they still don't, they're still not playing very well. Um, mm. And I think they've got a game against Chelsea on Friday night and that is going to be huge. And I think looking at the way Chelsea have been playing recently, 
I just I feel like Chelsea are going to win that game and that's going to really probably put Arsenal's title hopes to bed because Chelsea's win over City yesterday took them within two points of Arsenal and they've got a game in hand anyway. So mm. I do think momentum has kind of swung back towards Chelsea. But Manchester United deserve a lot of credit for, for the last couple of weeks that they've played some really good football and I think the way they're playing's really shifted from when they lost to Arsenal back in November, they looked like a lot better team. Uh, they've got really, really good sort of front three, front four, um, who just playing really aggressively, taking their chances. Their defence is still weak at times, um, but I think you know they're giving themselves a really good shot of qualifying for Europe for the first time. And given you know their pretty new outfit, it's been a very quick rise over the last couple of years. Magnificent. All right. Well, so Arsenal taking on Chelsea, as you say, just two points between them. Uh, this Friday night. Currently Man United in third, three points themselves behind Chelsea in third. All right. Also coming up this week, uh, Chelsea featuring in the Club World Cup. Matt Davis-Adams on Wednesday, they'll be taking on? Al-Hilal. Good. And then if they get past Al-Hilal, on Saturday, they'll be in the final against, well, we don't know, but you, I mean, the form book would suggest Palmeiras. Yeah, that seems most likely. Obviously, Chelsea will hope to have Thomas Tuchel available for the final should mm. they reach there. He's not, he's not going to be... Um, he, he's he self-isolating. Yeah, tested positive uh, for COVID on the on the morning of Saturday's game. So we'll see what effect if that has, if any. But it's, it's a tricky one, the Club World Cup, isn't it? I mean, Chelsea will be delighted that they're in this edition of it rather than the proposed 2014 <laughs> format, which would have taken place um, were it not for COVID. But... It, you just feel like it always means so much more to the South American sides than it does to the to the European teams, and that that can quite often um, define it. But I, on a personal note, I'd love Chelsea to win it just so that Cesar Azpilicueta can say that he's won every available club trophy while he's been at Chelsea. That would be quite nice. Who, who did they face last time they were in it? Corinthians. They lost to on right. penalties. I yeah, believe. and uh, Rafa Benitez. Rafa in, yeah, oh, yeah, Rafa, yeah. There's a well great fit. photograph of a very disgruntled Fernando Torres. Uh, at the shoot, end of the shootout, it's. Um, I'll be interested to see how Mr. Infantino uh, convolutes the trophy lifting ceremony in the World Cup, considering his frankly ridiculous shenanigans at the Afcon final. There were too many shenanigans from lots of people in suits yesterday. Infantino being king in the shenanigans, but just so much main character energy. So many people take, taking the moment away from the players, which I, it really, really frustrated me. Infantino is basically copying the Sepp Blatter playbook with his treatment of African football. So obviously there's the new proposed, the, the proposition for, for the African Super League, which mm. will create a clothes shop in a continent that absolutely doesn't need a clothes shop and will make travel impossible if that goes through. Um, there is some rumouring conjecture about qualification places for, for the new structure of the World Cup. Obviously a lot of conversation Depending on what feed you watched the, the AFCON final, you might have saw Yaya Toure say winning the AFCON means so much because, well, you know, to copy a bit of Matt, there are man cities in the World Cup, uh, bigger European nations. So winning the World Cup as an African nation is nigh on impossible. So you have to win your AFCON when you can win your AFCON. Um, we are seeing a lot more of Infantino talk about African football and make comments about African football. Right. And I don't believe a word of what he's saying because I've seen this before with Seth Blatter trying to secure more votes to secure his power as a FIFA president. So I'm very wary of of his influence in an AFCON trophy lift and what he's essentially going to say and do during his Club World Cup. Mm. If you're not a fan, by the way, of bald men making egregious comments about football, uh, steer clear of Channel 4's coverage <laughs> of the Club World Cup because uh, I'm going to be hosting it. It's on E4 on Wednesday and then uh, on Saturday on actual Channel 4, if, if I mean, with, with whoever's in that, you imagine Chelsea. But uh, me doing football on Channel 4, quite a thought. <laughs> all right. Uh, midweek Premier League as well. It's all over BT Sport. Nine games. Quickly running through these. Uh, Newcastle facing Everton, who are only four points above them. This is on Tuesday. Uh, Newcastle's fellow bottom three sides, Watford, will be at West Ham that night. And Burnley hosts Man United with Carl Anker. Attending Wednesday, Man City, Brentford. Brentford's first ever trip to the air to add that. Norwich are up against Crystal Palace. Norwich are on absolute, uh, well, they're on fire right now. Four wins from five so far this year. Spurs are up against Southampton. Aston Villa leads. And on Thursday, Liverpool take on Leicester and Wolves 
host Arsenal. Of course, there's already been one Premier League game that happened this weekend. Don't know if anyone was across this. It was a goalless draw at Turf Moor, Burnley against Watford. That sure was a game of football that happened. Did you, when you say was anybody across this, James, do you, do you yes. mean out of us three? Because I was yes. wondering if anybody who doesn't support Burnley or Watford or works right. in the football industry would have watched this game. Oh, Charlie. Charlie. Yes. Producer Charlie. Charlie watched it. <laughs> Producer Charlie. What did you think, Producer Charlie? Dower. Dower, says Producer Charlie. Of course, it was Roy Hodgson's first game in charge of the Hornets. And lo and behold, it was their first Premier League clean sheet in 31 games. Have some of that. Anyway, we can see if he can pull off that trick again as they host West Ham on Tuesday. Well, well, apart from that, apart from obviously that, what else are you looking forward to from the midweek round? Need to see something from Brentford, I think, fairly soon. I mean, they're, they're obviously very unlikely to go to Manchester City and win, but they're eight points above Watford, who are third bottom, and they've played two games more than them. They've lost their last five. Uh, only scored more than once in one of the last seven Premier League games. They, uh, they're in danger of getting dragged into it, I think, if they're not careful. It'll be still too early for Christian Eriksen to be featuring for the Bees, I imagine, is it? Presumably. It'll be a strange game to throw him into, I guess. Mm. Yeah. All right. I'll be interested to see uh, Everton's new look, central midfield. Uh, Grace Robinson, fantastic at Grace on Football, uh, often says that some managers... You can often see when a manager is trying to replicate the playing environment of their playing days, uh, almost a winner philosophical argument. And you can, it looks as if Frank Lampard is trying to create a century midfield that's just full of third man runs. Just like, yep, Donny's a free eight. Delhi's going to be a free eight. Uh, Decore, good luck. But we're just going to run and run and run and run and run and make late entries into the uh, penalty area. So if, if either Donny, Van der Beek or Delhi uh, can feature this midweek I'll be interested in that I'm also going to be interested to see what Burnley are going to do with their new six foot six striker Wout Vote Vote Veghorse Vote Veghorse I think yeah. he's going to have Vote's a very because it's all about crosses in the box with him <laughs> yeah yeah uh, he's going to have a very interesting duel with Harry Maguire on, on Tuesday so I'll be looking forward to see how that works out because I think Harry Maguire he could do with a nice performance soon because I think uh, quite a few football fans have forgotten how good Harry Maguire was for the majority of 2021 uh, and how he legitimately was one of the better centre-backs in the country, if not in Europe, for a good chunk of last year. Hmm. Very nice, Carl. Uh, Flo? I think Everton, definitely, I agree with Carl. From their highlights, it does seem like they're moving the ball a lot quicker than they did under Benitez, which I definitely think is is a positive thing that Lampard's already brought into the side. Um, so I'm interested to see how they, how they carry that on because I think there's some green shoots there, um, but I'm still a little bit intrigued by this Lampard appointment. So um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I like the fact that he's um, changed up his coaching team a bit, by the way. I think I think yeah. that shows a sign of evolution. I think that, that's what uh, Fergie always did so well, wasn't it? And what it took Jose Mourinho far too long to start doing. So the, the fact that he's done that in his, in his third job, I think, um, shows that he's kind of learning that he needs to adapt a bit and, and change a bit. And Wolves-Arsenal on Thursday as well, by the way, that, that one feels big to me. There's absolutely no excuse for Arsenal not to finish fourth in the league this year, but that's a difficult game for them. Okay. Also on Thursday, Liverpool Leicester. We've talked about Leicester's issues and the miserable time that their supporters are having could well continue at Anfield. Uh, they've met twice actually in uh, recent uh, weeks. In December, a couple of games, a three-three at Anfield in the League Cup. The Reds going through on penalties. Uh, Leicester, meanwhile, one-nil winners at the King Power in the Premier League that month as well. There you go. They could do with the result on Thursday. Super stuff. All right, well, of course, the two Thursday games we won't be able to cover, but the rest of the matches will be here on Thursday morning with another Totally Football show on our reactions to all the shocks and surprises therein. For now, though, that brings us to the end of today's edition. Many thanks, listener, for joining us. Many thanks to producer Charlie for his always excellent input, Matt Davis-Adams, Flo Lloyd-Hughes, Carl Anker, and we'll be back on Thursday, so we'll see you then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. 
The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.